Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about a book by Jason Brennan called The Ethics of Voting. It's a book about whether you have an obligation to vote. Uh, It's a book about whether you should abstain from voting in certain situations. It's a book about, you know, just what it sounds like it's about, the ethics of voting. And in this book, Brennan says that if you're trying to vote to do something like harm reduction or to uh, be efficacious or to accomplish some specific result, well, there's no reason to vote on that basis because even if you are voting in an election that's projected to be a real nail biter, as soon as there's any significant number of participants in the election, the chances that your vote will decide the outcome are virtually nothing. So much so that even if you personally could expect to be paid an enormous amount of money by the state, if your preferred candidate won, it would still be the case that the expected utility of your vote would be a tiny, tiny fraction of a penny. So if you don't have any duty to vote to be efficacious or to do harm reduction or other things like that, you know, why would you vote at all? Well, Brennan suggests that We may have, you know, it may be argued that we have a kind of civic virtue-based duty to vote. He suggests that we might have that before concluding that while we do have certain duties that come out of civic virtue, voting is just one particular way to express those duties. So while we have certain obligations to the society, Voting is not the only way to express those obligations or the only way to express civic virtue. There are other possible ways of contributing to society apart from voting that can potentially stand in for voting, particularly in cases where the cost of voting is is high, especially the cost of voting well. And Brennan makes a distinction between just voting and voting well. For Brennan, if you're informed, if you've really made an effort to understand how you ought to vote, That would give you you more of a reason to vote than someone who hasn't done that research. In fact, Brennan suggests that if you haven't properly done your homework, you have a duty to abstain from voting because your vote uh, contributes in some small way to to making things worse, right? Uh, You shouldn't be worried in that case about the free rider problem of, say, you know, you're free riding on the fact that other people are voting because if you voted, you would have a negative contribution to the quality of the decision. Of course, how can you know that you uh, aren't in position to vote epistemically without already knowing something about what it would be, uh, what you would need to know to vote? If you don't know enough to vote, you may also not know enough to not know that you don't know enough to vote. Um, Though I do think there are probably some people who are aware that they really don't know very much about politics or haven't done a lot of research or aren't familiar with candidates or policies or with social science. Brennan in particular recommends becoming familiar with social science with and not following the news. He says, don't follow the news. 
because the news doesn't contribute to a well-informed voting decision. You have to follow social scientific research. So when he's saying you need to be an informed voter, he's really not kidding about informed. And of course, if you know Brennan's background, Brennan is a libertarian theorist who has a very kind of free market economic perspective. And so for Brennan, there are certain facts about the way the economy works that you ought to learn. And if you haven't gone to the trouble to learn this stuff, then when you vote on the basis of what you think you'd like to see, you're not going to know what you're talking about. And in The Ethics of Voting, Brennan positions himself as a defender of democracy. He explicitly characterizes himself as a, as a pro-democracy theorist. But he went on in the following decade to write a book called Against Democracy that is a critique of democracy on the grounds that democracy tends to lead to bad decisions. And this, again, stems from Brennan thinking that there is a very clear difference between what you should do and what you shouldn't do, what counts as an informed vote and what doesn't count, what's valid expertise, valid knowledge, and what's not. So there's a very kind of strident epistemology that motivates this account. You know, it has to be the case for Brennan that there really is uh, something that you uh, ought to know before you vote, something that would lead you to vote in the right way rather than the wrong way. There's rightful voting and wrongful voting as a consequence of that in this view. So I'm not going to do a whole 30-minute spiel. I'm going to try to get a little bit faster into things today. So I think that's enough to get started. So let's... Uh, Let's let's see what Alex thinks. Alex, you picked this one. Alex, by the way, he picks all the topics since he came on the show, more or less. Uh, I have Alex pick the topics all the time because he always has uh, interesting things he'd like to read. So what drew you to this book? Um, if I'm honest, that uh, it was it was it was more of hmm, what should I pick? That's a little bit less, say, virtue theory, metaphysics, that kind of thing more modern political theory type stuff. So mm. something, you know, elections, voting, parties, candidates, economy, anything more, you know, meat and bones, maybe. Um, yeah. So how convincing did you find the arguments in this book? Did you buy them? Uh, were there reservations that you had as you were reading them? Um, well, I like, for example, saying that you should have the right to do something is not the same as saying you should do it. So, for example, you should have the right to become a teacher or do surgery, all that kind of stuff. But you have to pass an exam in order to do those things. Or you can make art that persecutes Jews, but, you know, oh no. Yeah, you can have the right to do that, but you should not do that, that kind of thing. And then the same for voting, right? So, but then right. I was a bit uh, confused. I haven't really reconciled it with something I read in the Stanford Encyclopedia, which was you can also run it the other way which is that if you say someone should not have should not do something, then you can also be compatible with saying that they have the right to do it. Does that make sense? Did I kind of fumble that a bit? But yeah. Yeah. It's so I, I do think sometimes when we t start talking about rights theory, people get a little bit confused about rights theory and how it relates to ethics. Uh, when you have the right to do something, there may be some situations in which you should exercise that right and other situations in which you shouldn't. Just like you may have the right to become a parent, but there are some situations in which you ought to exercise that right, perhaps, and other situations in which you shouldn't, depending on whether you're in position to do that well. And that very much is a driving argument in this book. 
of course, it is often difficult to tell whether you are in a situation where you're able to exercise a right effectively versus not. And so for Brennan, who puts so much weight on, are you in the situation where you can exercise the right effectively? There needs to be a quite spelled out, quite didactic description of when you are versus when you're not. And when you are, I guess you would be able to answer a 40 question test at the end of the ballot, which not only asks you about the candidates and their policies, but also the consequences of those policies, which would, as you say, need some kind of economics or stats knowledge or social science. Yeah. And part of the trouble is there's heavy disputes about what the consequences of most policies would be. So if you give someone that kind of quiz, there's going to be enormous disagreement about what the right answer should be on the quiz. And this is part of the trouble. Very rarely in social science is it actually as clear cut as Brennan is suggesting that it is. But of course, part of what makes, say, uh, the economics discipline a powerful discipline is that people treat economics as having discrete answers in the way that maybe, say, medicine has discrete answers. And when in point of fact, it doesn't work out that way, then you have a crisis on your hands because now if you've tried to suggest that we need to have knowledge that we don't have, all of a sudden nobody feels justified in making any decision or alternatively, everybody feels justified in doing whatever they want, regardless of, of uh, any kind of, of knowledge discourse. If you don't buy into knowledge discourses in the first place, if you frame them as, as a form of Foucauldian power knowledge nexus. It seems like if you want to ask whether this argument is effective at the moment, I'm thinking, one, does knowledge converge on some shared, you know, views? And then two, uh, yeah, so yeah, regardless of your demographics. And then is that like, a, is that an answer to the authoritarian kind of worries people would have about saying that if you are a good voter, you will have certain knowledge? views. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. A lot of theorists lately have said, well, okay, we can't have a consensus on values or on uh, moral concepts, but maybe we can have an epistemic consensus. There was a paper uh, by uh, Prinz and Rossi about ideology uh, some years ago. And in this paper, they make the argument that, well, we can say that something's ideological, not on the grounds that it's uh, you know, morally bad, you know, a, mor a morally bad statement or a morally bad deployment of, uh, of state power uh, or a bad excuse or bad justification for that deployment. Um, what we'll say instead is that ideology is when you are using a concept in a way that is epistemologically flawed. You are taking a concept and and obscuring or hiding its origins or the, the causal role that concept plays in getting people to behave or think a certain way, you're obfuscating that for the purposes of, of uh, getting people to do what you want. And so that kind of argument relies on there being an epistemic consensus, that it, it being really the case that we can all agree that there are certain principles that we ought to use for deciding what's true and false. Uh, we see this also with, with uh, arguments about science. COVID was a particularly good example of this, where 
you had people in different camps going, well, clearly, if you use you know, the scientific method, then the science says this or the science says that. Uh, but what we found is that in point of fact, politically, there was no epistemic consensus of that kind. We could not get everybody to agree what with what medical science uh well, not with what it says, but with even, you know, even what it is saying. We couldn't get people to agree on what it was saying in the first place, let alone whether what it was saying was trustworthy. And so I think that kind of highlights this. This book came out, oh, probably something like 15 years ago now. And you can kind of feel its age a little bit because at this point, the appeal to epistemic principles or sets of facts or ways of, of getting at what is fact a lot of this stuff no longer seems to be possible. Yeah, we, we no longer seem to be able to form political consensi around epistemological criteria. And yet theorists continue to invoke the notion that we might be able to do this as a way of trying to do political philosophy. They don't seem to be lying with the statistics, though, when they say things like, uh, if you rule out demographics, so your race, income, gender, you will have certain views on the economy. You're more likely to. Yeah, you're more likely. So you're more likely to be pro-free trade than protectionism, for example, in this one. Uh, what yes, of course, if, you know, you, you can say, well, if somebody is informed, uh, why, then they're more likely to have this view. But what counts as information? So if you then have a discussion about what counts as information, then you have to wonder, well, who's in position to influence that discussion? Well, who's in position to influence the discussion is whoever has the ability to persuade. And who has the ability to persuade? Well, it's people from specific class backgrounds who have had access to specific forms of education and training. And this is a point that Plato makes in his critique of direct democracy in Athens. The problem for Plato with direct democracy in Athens is that when you're having a discussion, the orators, the rhetoricians are the ones who tend to be able to prevail because they have the kind of training that allows them to win arguments. But that training that allows them to win arguments is not the same as the training that would allow them to actually know what the truth of the matter is, right? So once you start saying, well, what counts as information, you're not necessarily just resorting to epistemic criteria because you have this further question of what counts as the relevant epistemic criteria. And you, you then have to have a set of arguments about what counts. And the winners of those arguments tend to be those who have the best rhetorical skills, who are the best at persuading or convincing, which is not necessarily the same as being right. But oftentimes we suggest, well, these people, because they're informed, they must be rational, they must be reasonable, their convincing skills must be connected to their rightness. But in Plato's work in, say, the Gorgas, for instance, or the Phaedrus, he emphasizes that it is not at all obvious that being convincing or persuasive is connected to being right. It's weird why that is. I mean, I'll, I'll continue on that. I just want to throw this in there, though. But the argument's not about proving a justifiable belief, but proving that unjustifiable beliefs are true. And you can kind of get away with that by saying, look, this is evidence of wishful thinking. This is evidence of motivated reasoning. This is evidence of someone not accepting uh, or not changing their views despite overwhelming countervailing evidence. And you can test for that. You can test for the experts that they defer to. You can say, you can even ask what kind of authorities they get their information from, you know, but. 
yeah, it seems that you can do all of this. But then when you get into these politically contentious issues, what you'll often find is that people with different positions are drawing on different experts or different bodies of expertise or different sets of people who pitch themselves as experts on the basis of different criteria, right? So like, again, during COVID, the people who believe that you ought to um, get your vaccinations and wear your mask and socially distance and do the things that you were being instructed to do, and the people who thought that those things were a waste of time, both appealed to scientific evidence in their arguments, and both tried to claim that they had the support of experts of varying kinds. But neither one believed that the other's experts were real experts and both accused the other's experts of being, you know, paid by people or of being corrupt and of only saying what they're saying because of these other reasons that aren't really to do with the evidence. And so very quickly, it became unclear. Well, what is the evidence? If you ask the question, where did the virus originate? Did it originate in a lab or did it originate in a wet market? People will make all sorts of different claims. Some of these claims will involve evidence, but often what people believe depends in part on what they would like to believe, because there's a cultural uh, culture war antagonism around this issue. So at this point in the United States, if you're a Democrat, you want to believe that it came from a wet market. And if you're a Republican, you want to believe that it came from a lab. And therefore, you will read the evidence in line with that cognitive bias. So you can look at the social science and you can look at the research and you can say, I'm interested in what experts are saying. You can do all of that and still reach very different conclusions from people, from other people. And this is the difficult thing with trying to use epistemology to adjudicate. There was a time in my life when I thought this kind of argument was more persuasive than I do these days. Uh, There was a time when I used to think, oh, you know, if we do social science and we do political theory, we'll get to the bottom of stuff. But what I have tended to observe is that you'd never really get to the bottom of stuff. What you do is you find uh, what the antagonisms are, and you can find what are some effective ways of getting people to do specific things. But you can't really decisively prove in such a way that all educated or informed people will agree unless you define what counts as educated or informed in a loaded way such that you can only be educated or informed if you already agree in the first instance. I guess we should say the theory doesn't specify it has to be a unity of opinion. It could be bimodal, so two different you know poles, parties, but I still see your point. I mean, I think about COVID when I was messaging you, surely we should flatten the curve, right? And then I got a response that said, oh, maybe look at this and look at that. And, and then I start taking the opposite point of view, but it's purely on faith. So what would I have needed in that situation in order to make the correct judgment? I guess I would have needed to understand how they did the studies and the stats and all that time, which I could have done, but it would have been very difficult. Yeah. So Yeah, the thing about that situation is there was... A- not enough information to be absolutely certain about any particular position which anybody might take. There was information that you could use in support of views that you have, and the views that people were likely to have depended in large part on how they related to previous instances of state power in crisis situations, uh, and whether or not the particular government that was in power was a government that they trusted to make the bet, the right decisions or one that they didn't trust. So you have all these, these further issues that come into this uh, that affect how you look at the evidence and how you view it. 
And so, of course, the evidence is part of the story, but we can't say that the evidence decisively produces one specific view because this, in some ways, it's unfair to people on the other side because people on the other side do look at the evidence. They just see different things when they look at it because their, their vision tends to alight upon the things that are psychologically satisfying and to push to one side the things that are psychologically frustrating. At this point, a lot of psychological political theory you know, digs into a lot of this stuff and digs into the degree to which rationality or, or uh, reasonableness is not something we can straightforwardly say everybody's got. And this issue with the, you know, the Kantian conception of the person, the person is reasonable and rational and therefore is capable of coming to something like a Rawlsian consensus – to a large degree, our, our contemporary politics is marked by grappling with the fact that we don't seem to have this consensus. And yet, it seems very important that we do get people in many specific situations to do particular things, even though they don't all agree that those things need doing. And so, our politics has become more interested in how do we get people to do stuff and less interested in establishing that we've got a consensus or establishing that a set of things is based on fact. Hang on, how do we get people to do stuff means we have to agree on consensus. Stuff is the Well, we don't have to agree. It's just if you're in position to get people to do stuff, then you do what works. And if you're not in that position, then you are a victim of those who are. Uh, it's become a lot sharper recently you know, to the point where, you know, in, in the discussions about free speech, for instance, it's not widely believed that people these days who advocate for free speech are genuinely interested in there being a free discussion. The kind of basic assumption is that if somebody brings up free speech, they're bringing it up to provide a cover for their particular set of views, to allow their particular set of views to spread through the discourse, and that this is a way of papering over what is, in many cases, pitched as an authoritarian move, an attempt to spread authoritarian, very far right or very far left views in the discourse, right? So, because people have that view of free speech, they're suspicious when people bring it up. They don't think that people who are advocating for free speech are genuinely interested in a pluralist discourse, because at this point, that kind of commitment is viewed as naive or passe. Clearly, if we were all, you know, deliberating, we wouldn't get anywhere with that. The cognitive biases and the issues that people have with, you know, psychology and, and reasoning would all make uh, mincemeat of any attempt to have a good faith open discussion. So, therefore, anyone who's calling for a good faith open discussion is using that as a tool to inject their fake news or manipulative arguments into public discussion. And so, instead, those people have to be, the argument is, policed out. And so, these days, even people who have a kind of centrist liberal commitment are framing a lot of their arguments not in terms of we have the facts, but just uh, if we have a discussion about this, because people have these cognitive issues in the way that they reason or think, we'll lose even though we deserve to win. And therefore, we have to uh, do certain things to police the discourse or to get particular kinds of views or ideas out. Of course, if you're someone who subscribes to the, some of those views or ideas that are being policed out, you're going to say, hey, uh, this is restricting important and valuable speech. Are you doing that because you value speech or are you doing that because you want to push your ideas in the discourse in the same way that the centrist liberals are? It becomes impossible to be sure. And of course, if you were doing it for authoritarian reasons, you wouldn't admit it, would you? 
there must be some incentives that we can create for people to be more, I guess, willing to be dis- dispassionate, deliberative Democrats is the word he uses. But well, that would. You know, for one, there's a lot of people who don't agree that we should be dispassionate in the first place. You know, we have a lot of political theorists now who make arguments to do with you know, ethics of care and uh, the, who argue that liberalism has suppressed certain kinds of emotions or empathy or other kinds of ways of interacting with value apart from this dispassionate liberal rationality, individual rationality, and that by excluding those things, it is uh, restricting in some ways our freedom. One of the interesting arguments against kind of liberal rationality accounts is if you really are free, then you must also be free to not think like a liberal, right? (laughs) Or to not have a liberal worldview. And to not have a liberal worldview is to, for instance, say uh, uh, things like, I don't believe that we're individuals who all have, you know, the Kantian, you know, uh, the Rawlsian two moral powers, you know, we're not all uh, reasonable, rational individuals who can make dispassionate decisions on the basis of what's taken to be facts and evidence. Uh, once you reject that kind of claim, then, you know, what is it that we are having the discussion for? I think it is possible to give accounts of why we would have a discussion that don't rely on that kind of liberal argument. But at this point, it's assumed that if you don't have that liberal argument, liberal position, then you must not be sincerely committed to open or free discussion, that that would be the only basis for open and free discussion, and that without it, it doesn't make sense to have it. The, the position what? The, one- the, the position that we are reasonable, rational people who can benefit from discussion, benefit from talking. And as more social science research comes out, which indicates that you very rarely convince anybody by presenting the kinds of arguments that uh, liberal rationalists like, those kinds of arguments very rarely actually persuade anybody in point of fact sociologically. Uh, that's not to say that they're wrong or ineffective necessarily, but they don't work politically. So if that's the case, then if you do have an open discussion, the kinds of stuff that will work in that open discussion will be other kinds of stuff, which from the point of view of liberal rationalism is uh, not legitimate argumentative tactics, forms of manipulation, forms of cognitive massaging. And so ultimately, someone like Jason Brennan moves from this position of saying, you know, we ought to vote, but only when we're informed in this particular sense to writing against democracy. Because by the time he writes against democracy, he's feeling that at this point, the democratic system systematically produces bad voting in a way that cannot be avoided. It's, uh, it's not that the bad voting is many completely ignorant people, though. It's many mostly ignorant. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, it, the fact that it's systematic in that way means that it's more predictive, at least. Like, you know that if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to vote for something racist or stupid or, you know, then I don't know. It just puts you in a certain class. It's easier to tell that you belong to the, the bad voter group, maybe the basket of deplorables. I don't know. <laughs> It's not that people necessarily vote randomly, although Peter Mayer has made an interesting argument that voting is becoming more capricious and random as people care less about it uh, and feel that their voting doesn't make a difference and therefore they ought to vote for whatever seems fun or whatever seems entertaining. There's a significant tranche of people who are voting in a capricious and random way these days. Um, 
But it's not that people necessarily vote randomly. It's that the way they vote is not motivated by the kinds of rationalist concerns that liberal political theorists want to see motivating voters generally, or at least a particular type or generation of, of liberal political theorists want to see motivating voters. So then, you know, there are liberal attempts to accommodate. Maybe there are other reasons to vote or other uh, bases for voting apart from that rationalist basis. Uh, the ethics of care theorists, a lot of them have you know, broadly liberal values, but they think that certain kinds of emotions like empathy ought to come into the voting process. So they try to widen what counts as uh, legitimate contribution to a deliberation or to a voting process. Of course, for someone like Brennan, a lot of the things that people add in through something like an ethic of care would strike him as you know, forms of cognitive bias. What, what, so that, again, exposes more fault lines in this question of you know, what counts as informed voting or uh, the right kind of voting. You know when we're saying about people being convincing without using the truth? Yeah. So just say going along with conformity or what other people think. That still has its own truth logic, though, doesn't it? Because what works for everyone is always shifting a little bit. So say five years ago, Republicans say they're pro-free trade. Then after Trump, now they're against free trade. It's always changing basically just to suit, I guess, what works in the sense that it works enough for it to not change. So it's always changing to suit what works. Therefore, it's always kind of getting at what works. So it has some instrumental value. I don't know. Well, right now, outcomes. whether Republicans support free trade depends on which Republicans you ask. There are kind of old school establishment Republicans who support free trade. And then there are more Trumpy types who are at least in principle critical of free trade. Part of the trouble is, though, with and when it comes to elected representatives, what somebody says they're going to do or, or what they say they believe and what in point of fact they actually do in office often are at odds. So, for instance, when it came to Obamacare and the question of whether Obamacare should be repealed and replaced, it became necessary for Republicans in their primaries to say that they were committed to repealing and replacing Obamacare. But in point of fact many of those Republicans were not really committed to doing that. And so when the vote comes up, of course, they are, end up with not quite enough votes to repeal and replace. John McCain ends up being the decisive vote. And I think the kind of uh, outsider view is, well, of course, it's, you know, John McCain, he just decided to be a maverick and he defied the party. And it's because of him that Obamacare was preserved. But I see John McCain as someone who was terminally ill and not going to run for reelection and therefore can easily accept the blame and credit for that decision, which is probably a decision that comes down to the whole caucus where they count the votes up and they decide who can get away with voting this way or that way with the outcome arranged by how everybody votes. Uh, I, you know, I very much doubt that John McCain made it a surprise. It can be made to look as if it's a surprise, but I very much doubt that uh, the party leadership had no idea that that was going to happen in that way. What they want is for Obamacare to not be repealed, but for none of the candidates who are running for re-election in the party to have any blame for the fact that it's not being repealed. That's always been my theory about that case. 
and whether that's true or not, it might be that I'm wrong. It might be that it really was the case that John McCain surprised everybody. But uh, what it highlights is that if you're trying to vote based on what you expect somebody to do, people often do not do what they say they will do. So it's difficult to vote on that basis. And then also, people often make decisions they never discuss during the campaign, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Situations arise where you really could not know, based on the campaign documents, what somebody would do. When people voted for Tony Blair, they were not thinking, oh, we're voting to participate in the Iraq war, to be uh, one of the leading countries in going into Iraq. That was a situation that arose while Blair was prime minister. Uh, same goes for Bush uh, in the United States. There was no manifesto or platform pledge to invade Iraq. The situation in which Iraq could be invaded arose as a consequence of 9-11 and as a consequence of the rhetorical way in which those leaders responded to that event. So if you're voting, in point of fact, the Bush administration framed itself as more isolationist and more opposed to foreign intervention than uh, Al Gore and the, and the Clintons in the 2000 election. So in that case, what actually happens had nothing at all to do with the voting, really. In fact, it directly contradicted what it appeared to be that people were voting for. So a lot of the time with voting, you have no idea even what the positions are or what the candidates are doing, even if you pay attention, even if you follow what everybody's doing and what everybody's saying. Uh, and so that's another aspect to this. You can look at social science. You can go, okay, this candidate's committed to this policy, which according to social science, you know, will have this effect. But a lot of the time, candidates will say they're committed to this policy when they're not committed to that policy or when they're committed to a policy with that name, but not one which does the things that they suggest it will do. For instance, during the Democratic primary, here's another example. Lots of candidates said they were for Medicare for all. But if you looked at what Medicare for All actually meant on their websites, they would not define it or they would define it explicitly as a public option or as other things that aren't Medicare for All. So it's not enough to just follow the social science. You also have to figure out what it is that people actually support. And candidates at this point are very good at making it impossible for you to know that. Although Brennan did maybe cover it a bit by saying you should know political science so that you know how likely the candidate is to follow through on their promise. But that's quite difficult, I guess, again. You'd have to know. You, it's not enough to know political science. You have to know the person's history and background. Right. You know, during that primary, I, I, I had to do an enormous amount of you know, reading up on little details of the biographies of people like Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg to get a sense of, you know, who are these people and will they actually do what they say they will do? And, and this is stuff where you cannot decisively prove with evidence that this person will or won't do things. Sometimes a candidate has a history of acting one way and then in office acts a different way. You know, so, for instance, you know, Franklin Roosevelt would not have been picked to necessarily be a big New Deal government spender before he was elected. His prior electoral history did not show that that was the kind of person that he was going to be. But again, the situation caused him to try and, and new things and experiment in new directions. And so when he ran for re-election in 1936, his position was far to the left of what it had been in 32. And if you'd asked people in 32, is Roosevelt going to move far to the left and be you know, in that position in 36? I don't think most people in 32 would have thought that would have been the case. So 
even if you do look up people's history and background, that stuff can be misleading and can and can lie to you. I, I don't know if I've ever researched candidates that in depth ever for an election. So, and it makes less sense to do it in European politics, where party discipline is more important than individual candidates. In the states, though. Uh, you know, and Brennan is is writing from the United States. In the states, it's very difficult to use you know, what kind of what what the party by itself as the heuristic for determining what someone will do. In the UK, where at least in principle the manifesto is supposed to lock you in to something, you can potentially use that to hold people to account. But what we increasingly find, even in the UK, is that the parties do not necessarily do what's in the manifesto, and the discrepancies between policy and what's in the manifesto have been getting bigger and bigger as the manifestos become more and more like American party platforms as campaign documents rather than actual statements of purpose or intent. And then also, if you end up with coalition governments, the fact that you then need to do a coalition means that what the, the government will actually do will be some kind of backroom compromise among the manifestos. And it will have very little at all to do with what everybody ran on. So a lot of the time when you're voting, you have absolutely no idea what you're voting for, no matter how much research you do. And the difference between someone who does a ton of research and someone who does no research at all and votes in a random fashion is not as great as people generally make out. Ultimately, you can you can say, you know, and I during 2020, I said, "Ah, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is is going to do this or I don't think that Pete Buttigieg is going to do that. But the quality of evidence you're relying on to make those judgments is never going to be nearly as high as the kind of social science research Brennan is trying to gesture at here. It is certainly not the case that social science research can just straightforwardly tell you how to vote. It's a big reason for the difference between party policy and then what party actually does, or manifesto and actual uh, is it the fact that the central government often kicks down responsibility to local governments more and more, and UK is becoming more like America in that regard, or is it just other stuff like the size of? The- so it it can be a factor. It can be that um, you know sometimes you try to do something and the localities don't implement it, but also sometimes it makes sense to run on something to talk about something during a campaign. And then it's assumed that, well, if you don't do what you say you're going to do during the campaign, that you'll you'll pay a price for that. But actually, in point of fact, there are a lot of ways to get out of things that you promise to do. For instance, repealing and replacing Obamacare would have created a huge health care mess if the Republicans had actually done it. So they found a way to avoid doing it while looking like they had every intention of doing it and had been obstructed by just this this one old man, John McCain. Right? They found a way to not create this mess for themselves that they had promised overtly over and over and over again to create. And I think that's something that people underrate. It is very possible to frame things in such a way that you can avoid these obligations and people don't even give you that hard a time or accuse you over and over of U-turning. British governments increasingly find they will not get punished to anything like the degree that is often assumed for deviating from the manifesto. The people who get most upset about deviations from the manifesto are the party activists who actually put time and energy into campaigning on behalf of the party and then don't get what they were looking for out of it winning. Those people may get disillusioned and they may get upset and they may get frustrated. But 
the vast bulk of the country doesn't follow that stuff close enough to remember by the time there's another election and will often accept pat explanations for why the thing doesn't take place. They'll often accept the politician going, well, we just couldn't do it because of John McCain. There must be certain issues where you can't do that, but very few maybe, and maybe the party collects data on this and is able to tell. Yeah, I think you can probably do a, a significant amount of polling research. This is social science is not great at telling you what you should vote for or what you should do, but social science is often good at helping us figure out what works as persuasion or what is rhetorically powerful. So social science, I think, has a better track record with showing what kinds of, of things can you say to someone to get them to change positions or what kinds of situations allow for different things to happen. It's not very good at, at the normative. How we should. But it, it does have a real talent for, you know, if you say this thing to somebody, will it change their view? Does it change the poll numbers if you pitch something this way or that way? Which kinds of language are more or less effective? There's a lot of good stuff in that direction. But none of it's going to tell you how you ought to vote. But it will tell someone who is working for a party how they can massage the population into going along with something that you might initially assume the population would not go along with. But yeah, if, if, it, if it can tell you that certain views correlate with other views, and it's just maybe t uh, obvious or taken for granted assumption that many views you just shouldn't have, then the descriptive results are normative. Yeah, I, I think part of what's going on here is that different parts of the society are taking different views for granted as the views that you ought to have. Based on... If you hang out with different parts of the political spectrum, you'll find that what's taken for granted is very different. Yeah. And so the, the social scientists who are operating in the kind of mainstream liberal space will take certain things for granted and people who are operating in the more critical, you know, radical left space will take other things for granted. Uh, and, you know, people who operate in the conservative space will take other things for granted. And so we, you know, if we start talking about the ethics of voting, it just becomes, it becomes a big mess in this way. Uh, I think that you could say something in terms of, well, isn't it possible for informed people to reach different decisions. And maybe it's not that there's one correct way to vote or incorrect way to vote, but that you ought to you know, take an interest in these things. Maybe you have a civic duty just in a general sense to take an interest. It may not produce you know, that you ought to vote one way or another or that one vote counts as informed or another doesn't count as informed. But maybe you have a civic duty to, to follow or to play along or to, to watch what's happening. I think the question I would then ask is, no. Is that really the best form for, for that civic duty to take? And I think Brennan asks that question, and that's an interesting question. The part of Brennan's argument that I find the most persuasive is not that there's you know this argument about there being a sharp difference between voting well and not voting well or informed versus uninformed voting. The part I find most interesting is this idea that you really do not have a duty to vote for the purposes of changing the electoral outcome. And this argument 
in 2020 in the States, it got made a lot, this harm reduction argument that you have a duty to vote to reduce harm. And it involves just papering over the extraordinarily uh, negligent effect of the vote and treating it as if you have this enormous, enormous duty to do something which has, you know, even if you were to say uh, that you know, democracy is at stake and democracy has a near infinite value and you put an enormously high, you know, uh, value on it in terms of numbers. Let's say you say that it, it matters, you know, for 20 trillion utility points. You know, uh, even then the expected marginal utility of the vote is less than a tiny fraction of a point. And this argument has always stuck with me as the most powerful contribution that this book makes and the most interesting contribution that the book makes. The other stuff about informed versus uninformed voting, it leads Brennan to just become a critic of democracy in a kind of epistocracy sort of direction of just wanting experts to run things you know, in a kind of we just need a bunch of free market technocrats to make the decisions because the voters are dumb and uninformed kind of sense. Uh, that stuff is, is, I think, much less interesting. But the part of this book that has stayed with me over the years, and I first read it many years ago, but the part that sticks with me is this idea that if you're trying to vote to get an outcome and you're justifying your vote on the basis of the outcome, that really doesn't make any sense at all. And so when people get into these big harm reduction arguments, you, know, you often have to play along because, because if you try to make uh, a broader point about the importance of voting, people say, stop undermining you. Uh, uh, you know, people voting. It's not rhetorically effective to bring up this point, but intellectually it stayed with me. And I often find in situations where I don't feel any particular drive or motivation to vote, I, I find myself sometimes willing to consider not voting or willing to consider voting for social reasons. Uh, and I think this is something that gets left out of this book. A big part of why people vote in practice is because the people around them want them to and want them to vote in particular ways. So, for instance, if you have a spouse or a partner who wants you to go and vote with them, you can start an argument about how the vote isn't efficacious and you can point out that actually it won't make any difference how you vote. But that argument, because these sorts of arguments very rarely convince anybody, is unlikely to change your spouse or partner's view about this issue. It's just going to cause an argument to happen that will go nowhere, really, except it will aggravate you. And so oftentimes what it makes more sense to do is just treat it like your spouse or partner wants to go out for a cup of coffee with you and treat it as a date and go because you care about that person and you want them to have a nice time and then vote in whatever way is conducive to the flourishing of the relationship and the sense that your partner is you know, a happy person and happy with you. And I think that that in practice is how a lot of people vote. Because the, there are no other real benefits to voting in most cases apart from this uh, sense of satisfaction. Now, if you believe you have a civic duty to vote, you've fulfilled your civic duty, it might give you a sense of pride in having fulfilled civic duty. I think that's another reason people vote. So there are people who think they're being effective when they're not. There are people who are voting to fulfill a sense of civic duty 
But then I think there's this neglected tranche of voters who are voting because their parents or their friends or their partner will be unhappy if they don't. I think it's a big chunk of people. And I would love to see some research on that. Is, is it part of civic duty to feel, yeah, like you should vote because others tell you? Well, I think like if you really can't say what counts as, as a good vote or a bad vote because we are at such an information disadvantage, it would seem hard to say, um, you know, that you have a civic duty because – I mean, my view about this has always been, even if huge numbers of people stopped voting, it would not prevent democracy from continuing to function. You know, I used to wonder, you know, what if there was a strike by voters? Let's say that we decided that this political system is, needs to go and the way that we pursued it is with a general strike where we all boycott the election. This is done in many countries. You know, sometimes this happens where you go, you know, the whole system is rigged. So we, uh, you know, this party and our supporters, we're not going to participate. We won't vote. Well, what then happens is that party and its supporters, they get a very low turnout and a very low percentage, and then the system moves on with them in a diminished position. But people still go to work and nothing changes or? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily deliver any kind of result. I think boycotting elections is a way of kind of making a statement or signaling a kind of disgust. But I don't think in terms of delivering political change, it's particularly effective unless you're in a really nasty situation where you're going to follow up boycotting the election by setting up a shadow government and then you're going to fight a civil conflict. It could be an effective first step if you're trying to stage a coup or trying to start a civil war or something like that. But in terms of normal functional politics, I don't think boycotting the election works. But it's weird when you, when you express, you do make a difference to the outcome because you change the whole atmosphere. When everyone, when there's millions of people expressing the same thing, it's and then obviously say the party disavows it, but they still include it on the dis, on the agenda. It's hard and to the say. Way it I doesn't tend to think our- about it is, it's not that you're expressing it and you're expressing it as changing something, either alone or together with those other people. It's that the party in question has created a situation in which many people feel enthused about voting for them for some reason. Many people feel. Like it will be a fun thing to do to go and vote for that party. Now, why do they feel it will be a fun thing to do? Well, some of them may have beliefs about you know, the effects of what the vote or the effects of the party uh, and may be motivated by that. But I think a very large number will feel a sense of civic pride in voting for the party or they will feel that they will affirm and tighten up their relationships with the people in their immediate life by voting for the party. But it's, it's a case of because of the situation that the party has created through its policies, through its rhetoric and campaign, uh, people feel good about doing it. Or people feel bad about the other party and want to signal their disgust with that other party. But that's, it's about signaling feelings rather than about trying to achieve an outcome. And insofar as it's about trying to achieve an outcome, that it is an irrational thing to try to do. It's irrational to, on a personal level, try to make something happen with the vote. Now, one interesting critique of that, I think, would be to say, well, why are you thinking about it in terms of the individual in the first place, right? Why am I saying, well, the individual doesn't matter? Or why is Brennan saying that? Uh, 
And the issue is, of course, for Brennan, Brennan is a libertarian. And so for Brennan, all decisions are made by individuals. And if they're made by individuals, then when you make a decision about whether or not to vote and you're asking whether or not voting is efficacious, the question has to be, does the individual vote matter? It can't be about something like a big set of people voting, right? So if you are op operating uh, the party machinery, you might be capable of getting very large numbers of people to vote or not vote, depending on how you operate that machinery, right? If you're running a campaign, you can affect turnout in a big sense with the way you run the campaign. So at that point, you're not affecting one vote individually. You are making decisions about how large numbers of people potentially will vote that affect how many people vote. And so if you're running a campaign, you're in a very different situation from someone who's making an individual decision about whether or not to vote. And I think if we dropped the individual and we frame this all very differently, where we're not asking, you know, should individuals make a decision to vote? But we are asking, is voting good or is it good in a general sense if people vote this way in a larger sense? using abstract concepts like peoples or groups or uh, classes. You know, should the working class vote this way? That's a different way of framing the question than what should you do? But a lot of the time in our elections, it comes down to what should you do? And do you have a duty to do this or that? And that's a kind of liberal individualist framing that if we drop that framing, the whole debate looks really different. As soon as you ask, though, why shouldn't you do it, though, it seems most answers say, because if everyone did that, then, but then that goes back to the group. So it's like the, the liberal individualists are using the group opposite way of defending it. Yeah, yeah. I think the Kantian categorical imperative and oh, yeah. uh, the utilitarian you know, calculus, those are both ways of trying to turn an individual thing into a collective thing. Right. They both revolve around there being one correct answer. You know, there's one thing that would be the greatest good for the greatest number in that situation. Or there's one thing that would be the action that you would will would be a universal law. Both of those views don't engage with the level of plurality that we were talking about earlier. You know, the degree to which people disagree about epistemology and about ethics. Uh, a lot of people just don't buy that everything that they do individually has to be treated as if it were a universal law. I mean, after all, I can't will that it would be a universal law that every person becomes an academic who does political theory. If I were to will that that were a universal law, then nobody would eat and we'd all die. <laughs> now, there's certain issues with, you know, acting on the basis of universal law. And also, if you have different parts of society that have different interests, legitimately different interests, and you want a state in which those different interests are represented so that there's some possibility of those different interests coming together, well, then it can't be the case that you'd will that everybody votes the same way. If you actually think that the electoral system should represent some level of, of value diversity or cognitive or ideological diversity, then you can't will that everybody votes precisely the same way. But I thought the same way is actually the enlightened way, which actually is the plural way, which is everyone has access to goods which are uniquely valuable to them, you know, because the enlightened way manages to, or the, with maximum information and reason. You well, can see, they're, they're, you know, valuable to them. Now we're back in the, in the, in the doxa versus, you know, uh, knowledge kind of question. So if somebody values something, does that mean they should get it? So the classic you know, Platonist answer is not necessarily, and, in, and indeed most of the time, probably not. A lot of things that people want are not what's good for them as such, right? So 
if we say how should a class vote, we're not necessarily talking about what it would be fun to do or what they would like to do or what they are uh, likely to do. We're asking what would it be good for them to do and whether or not it's possible for them to be to do what it would be good for them to do is a question, a further question that we would then have to ask after that. Uh, so, but if you buy a kind of uh, more thoroughgoingly liberal perspective, so you say that we have individuals and individuals have preferences or they make autonomous choices or they have desires, right? There's something that emanates from the individual. That something is the seed of value, right? Then voting becomes a way of adjudicating differences among these values. And so does the market for that matter. You know, people want to buy different things because they want or value different products or different uh, different kinds of things. They're... Uh, purchasing decisions are like votes and through those purchasing decisions these different preferences or desires or autonomous choices are aggregated in such a way that you get something that makes a certain amount of sense right this is broadly how liberals tend to do ethics uh, you know not all liberals but a lot of liberals if you have those kinds of views then you know, yeah, if you were fully informed, you could still come to different kinds of values. If you have, say, an, inc uh, an account where values are incommensurable with one another, they're not all interchangeable. So you could have a kind of non-utilitarian liberal account where people have incommensurable values. If they're fully informed, they come to the values that they have and then they vote or they buy stuff to adjudicate that that question of those value differences. The issue with that, that someone who comes at this from a non-liberal, say, play Platonist standpoint would have would be that many of the things that people desire or want are not good for them, straightforwardly not good for them. And if the state gives them those things, that will, you know, will potentially have consequences that are, are very bad. Not just in general, but for those people, potentially themselves. But you need to make you need to have so much humility to make that distinction between you know, belief and knowledge of what's good for you. And not to, to like things that are just simply enjoyable or that give you approval. Uh, you need, it's a, on a too high bar is what I'm saying, maybe. And of course, so. if you're someone who has those preferences that the Platonist is disapproving of, you accuse the Platonist of using the distinction between what's really good for you and, and mere doxa and mere desire uh, as just a, a means of trying to control you or to control what you get to have or what you get to do or take your freedom away. There's a skepticism, of course, that you're likely to have if you... Uh, want something and someone's telling you, no, you can't have that. It's not good for you. And there's a tendency to go, hey, I'm not your child. I, you know, I'm, I should be able to make decisions for myself. Why are you being paternalist? Right. So then we get these questions about whether paternalism is a valid approach to these to these things. And a lot of liberals who are committed in a thoroughgoing way to democracy or to the market are uncomfortable with paternalism. Because paternalism involves the idea that there are values that are bigger than what it is that particular people want or prefer, and that those values can be used to judge the things that emanate from individuals. And if you can use values to judge what emanates from individuals, then you can subordinate individuals to abstractions, and those abstractions are open to definition. So the libertarian or the anarchist is suspicious of that kind of move because the libertarian or anarchist is interested primarily in the flourishing and the unfolding of the individual's potential, individual self-actualization. And so a person who's operating from that kind of perspective 
does not want there to be some kind of concept or abstraction that can be used to evaluate the individual, judge the individual, judge the things that the individual wants. But if you drop judging the things that individuals want, well, what people want may develop in directions that you don't particularly like uh, and which we would all regret if we actually saw them all delivered through to their conclusion. And so then it becomes a question of, well, which abstractions do you trust? What about the one which says the moral claim that bad voters should abstain is not the same as the political claim as saying, even though they're bad, let them vote anyway, but in general, better education would make them less bad. I mean, would better education make them less bad? I mean, this is, I think, one of the things that has often bothered me. A lot of the time, there's an impulse among a certain kind of liberal to try to solve every problem with civic education. And just or educate Marxist people as well, I guess, like teach them about how you're exploited or something when you're. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you were really a thoroughgoingly committed Marxist, then the, the situation of the exploitation is what teaches you. No amount of talking really overcomes what the situation teaches you, which is if you are a worker and you are exploited, being in that situation will tend to make you think about that. Right? And tend to give you a certain attitude about it because you've experienced it. It's part of your your you know, the material conditions that give rise to your consciousness, you know, if you're a thoroughgoing Marxist. But a lot of people in the kind of, uh, yeah, it's true about certain libertarian socialists, they think in this kind of way, uh, about civic education or about what's taught in school. And so they you know, prescribe very didactic forms of education that are meant to try to, you know, make states or schools teach certain things in certain ways. And there's an assumption that that teaching will have the effect that they think it will have or hope it will have. But I don't think there's very good evidence in support of civic education as a way of getting people to think or believe certain things. I think generally whatever it is that the teacher pushes at you as a dogma, you're inclined to resist if you're a high school student. Uh, and you know, very often... This kind of civic education is is not really a very serious way of engaging with why people believe what they believe. You're like, for instance, if we were to just say, you know, um, why did the Holocaust happen? Why did people come to believe anti-Semitic things and then carry out the Holocaust? A lot of people in that kind of situation on that subject will say, well, you know, they need to be educated about anti-Semitism and they need to be educated about the Holocaust. And we need to teach these things in the schools. And that sounds like a very kind of simple solution. But of course, there couldn't have been Holocaust education or education about anti-Semitism before it arose in the first instance. If we were to actually go back to the 1800s, you know, we couldn't teach about these things before they happened or before they had names or when, when this stuff was all developing. So the question then is, well, why did it develop? What gave rise to that process that culminated in that event? And if you understand the historical process, then you might be able to make an intervention that would disrupt that kind of process if you thought it was happening again. For one, you'd be able to really evaluate whether it was happening again because you'd know what the process was. And so then you could really say, well, do we have the prerequisites for that? But when you just go, well, people just need to be educated better it's often a way of not really engaging with what the causes are of the thing in question that you're trying to understand or prevent or deal with. Uh, And that is where I think the Marxist analysis is kind of powerful. You know, for the Marxist, the reason that people come to believe certain things is 
certain facts about the situation that lead them down particular paths, certain facts about their social role, their class position, and the things that that position invites them to think. So the demographics. So if you if you structure a society in such a way that, you know, lots of people perform factory jobs, then people tend to think like factory workers. And there are certain aspects of being a factory worker that promote certain ways of thinking and being in the world. Because, you know, the way that Aristotle puts it is you are what you repeatedly do. So if you do the same things all the time, then you have to think in certain kinds of ways to do those things. And that tends to lead to other ways of thinking in other areas of life or to particular forms of politics related to what it is that you do all the time. Conversely, if you're someone who has never, ever set foot in a factory and you uh, work as a lawyer and you have a professional degree and, and you work behind a desk, you see the world from a very different perspective because you are interacting with it in a very different way, day in, day out. You give somebody 20 or 30 years of the of that kind of experience versus the working in a factory experience, they're going to have a very different consciousness. They're going to think in a very different way because they're doing that all day, every day. Right? So as the world you know, changes in all kinds of ways, Marxists are often interested in, well, what are people doing all day, every day? And how is that changing the way that they think? And if we change what people are doing, say we take them out of the peasant village and we put them in the factory, the fact that we've put them in the factory, this is a new situation, it's a new role, and it will lead to new ways of thinking for them because they're doing something every day that they previously weren't doing. And if we we then shut the factory and take them out of the factory and put them in, say, McDonald's, (laughs) that is a different experience that isn't precisely the same and leads to different ways of thinking. And so I, I would not stick this on the Marxists. The Marxists are not the ones who try to civic education their way out of everything. There are other factions within the left that tend to have that kind of view, but uh, not trad Marxists who believe in something like dialectical materialism. Um, but I do think it's an issue. I do think a lot of people just go with, uh, with civic education. And the thing is, like, even if you did have a particular kind of education that you knew was effective, which Very rarely do these reformers have any proof that the education is effective. But even if you did have it, if you want the social consequences of better education, you have to wait for the people who receive the education to become adults. And not only that, you have to wait for them to become a significantly large enough part of the population that they can play a decisive role in elections or they can populate major institutions and become leaders in the society. And so what I've always said is, If you have a civic education policy that actually would work, it will take 50 years from the moment that you implement it to actually get the result that you're looking for. Uh, And for this reason, by the way, this is why it's impossible to prove that civic education works, because it takes a long time for someone who receives civic education to become a leader, right? So even if you say, okay, I gave a student this experience and Six months later or a year later, they had these opinions and the opinions are marginally different from what they had before in these particular ways, right? Even if you did that kind of social science, even if you did a multi-year, 10-year study about what people think who've received the civic education versus haven't, you aren't going to know what people are going to do as adults as a consequence of the civic education until they're adults. So the only way you can really know that civic education works is to implement it and then wait decades to see what happens. And most of the time, after you wait those decades, nothing happens. 
and it doesn't change anything at all. So I get frustrated with this because people go, you know, we need to act. We need to do something. Well, if you really feel that way, then we need to dig into what actually happened in these cases and actually confront it with a policy that, that meets the situation as opposed to just we're going to talk at children differently and then we're going to wait 50 years and see what happens. But from the Marxist point of view, civic education is not teaching them deep differently in a classroom. It's making their bodies do different activities so that they have different power knowledge like Foucault. Yeah, you could call, you know, civic education, you know, actually putting somebody in a role for a while and having that role have an effect on them. Say, uh, you know, Maoists often would, would say, well, if somebody is not thinking in the right kind of way, you have to send them to work on a farm for a while. And then the experience of working on a farm will give them more of a peasant type consciousness that is more amenable to uh, revolutionary action. Yeah. You know, it's things like that. If you are you know, trying to do a revolution in a country that's agrarian, you know, maybe you want to take people into a factory and, and industrialize so that you'll have more factory workers who will think like you know, proletarian factory workers and therefore be amenable to a particular kind of politics that caters to that perspective. Uh, you know, that would be a Marxist way of doing civic education, but that involves actually putting people in roles. It's not just talking at them in a classroom. But I mean, any role, any job. As you were saying, is it's it's its own form of education about what to think about politics because overwhelmingly people in certain jobs will think a certain thing. So yeah, so that proves his argument, right? That there are there there is convergence in different groups in society, and well, that you can control for those demographics and you can reach some kind of correlation between yeah knowledge and preference. But even then, you you couldn't say that any of those specific groups necessarily has more knowledge or better knowledge or is better informed than the others. They have different perspectives brought about by experiencing different aspects of the society. I mean, we have this enormously complicated modern industrialized society and any person can only experience a tiny, tiny fraction of it in their day-to-day -day life, especially if you have a job that requires you to go to the same place and do the same things repeatedly over time, you're only experiencing a tiny part of this whole system. And every other part of the system you only hear about in a mediated way. What is the mediator? What is the media? It's the mediator, right? You hear about everything else that happens in this mediated way given to you by particular people who, by the way, they don't do the job you do. All they do is make media content. So they have a particular way of looking at the world that comes from the fact that they work in the media. And that affects everything that they tell you. So everything that you get is mediated through these people who their experience of the world is being in the media. So we have a really hard time knowing what's going on. So when somebody goes, this is informed or this isn't informed, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to make sense of what it is that they're actually talking about there. Uh, apart from this person agrees with me or this person shares my priors or shares my experience. And you can try to you know, separate out all of these things, but you would just get lots of different positions uh, and you would not be at all clear which one is correct. But at least if we started measuring how different blocks of people vote, we could at least leave it to history because people often look back with hindsight and say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have supported that position in the American Civil War. You know, it's easy to say. So maybe in 100 years time, if we keep collecting election data on the day, it would well, at least of course, tell us for the, for the sake of the historian, it's always valuable to have good data, good solid data. Historians love it and they need it to do their work. 
So we should always take good data for the historians. But of course, every moment is a new moment and every election is a new election in certain ways. And so even if you have really good electoral data on what has previously happened, people are in different situations in every election from the elections that they've previously been in. And in certain respects, therefore, elections have this unpredictable quality to them where people will start to change how they vote as new things happen and the society changes in new ways. And so for that reason, attempts to try to predict what will happen at scale in politics on the basis of history become out of date really fast. If you do a bunch of polling or surveying data, as soon as it's more than a few years out, you have to really be sketched out by it because by that point, the situation is so different. And what we've all lived through and experienced is so different that the same language will not have the same effect. One of the things I think that people in the kind of civic education space don't reflect on enough is the fact that any term that has an effect the first time you hear it will not have the same effect when you've heard it 50 times, right? If somebody uses a term that sounds like a nice word, the first time you hear it, you'll go, oh, that's a nice word. But if it's used over and over and over again to try to push particular things or get you to do particular things, and it becomes obvious that the term is being used to push you around, then even though the term sounded nice the first time you heard it, when you've heard it the 700th time, you'll regard it as a kind of rank propaganda, and it won't have the same effect. If anything, when you hear it, you may be pushed away from the position they want you to have. And so terms that work when you put them in front of somebody in a focus group do not work when they are blasted on the media for years at a time. But of course, you can't test that very conveniently or easily. You can see if a term works in the near term. So if you do that kind of research and then you immediately do a campaign very soon after that, on the basis of that research, that campaign, it might work. If you just think that that research holds, you know, five years later, 10 years later, you'll often be disappointed. You'll often go, oh, shoot. I guess a couple of things, though. I wasn't talking about median issues, but hardcore right and wrong issues, which is maybe only two out of 10 things. And then the second thing was, I'm not talking about polls. I'm talking about census data. So, you know, everyone who votes, basically. Uh, and then 100 years time, you can see, oh, look. Everyone who supported the Holocaust also supported this view. Or everyone who supported oppressing this minority also, you know what I mean? You can quite easily say, oh, that was a mistake in history, yeah. And then you can easily correlate that if you have census data, not just polls. Yeah. I mean, I, I doubt that it would really be the case that you would find that kind of hard correlation. Okay. You might find some, some relationships. There might be some connections between you know, some beliefs and other beliefs. But also, I think that can be... Because that's not an absolute relation, sometimes that's used to disparage other positions that don't deserve it. It might be the case, for instance, let's just say that uh, most people who supported Hitler uh, liked the color red, <laughs> right? If that's yeah. the case, it doesn't make red a bad color to like, even yeah. if it were you know, shown statistically that people who liked Hitler and people who liked red heavily, heavily overlap. You know, if people then went around and said, ah, your favorite color is red, you must be some kind of, uh, you know, dangerous person. We ought to keep an eye on you. That wouldn't exactly be fair. But then that's confusing the moral claim that bad voters should abstain with the political claim that bad voters should lose their right to vote. And even though one implies the other, it seems like he's separating that. Even though well, you, you could say you have the right to vote, but you could still be someone that people judge and look down upon and go, well, you're someone who's going to vote badly. 
And I think we, we have a lot of this we, in the states, particularly with racial demographics uh, and with you know, urban versus rural. There are a lot of different group distinctions in the states that people use as heuristics to judge whether they think somebody votes well or has the right kind of politics to the point where in the states you can look at somebody and and. A lot of people do this. They look at somebody and they make assumptions about what their politics must be based on the color of their skin or or what or where they where they're from, what state they're from or whether they live in a city. And a lot of this stuff, you know, just even if insofar as there are correlations or there is some level of relation that you could show statistically, oftentimes thinking in terms of that causes you to approach other people in a way that makes it harder for you to make any kind of progress in dealing with them or in negotiating with them or in trying to find a modus vivendi, a way of living alongside them. Is that the same as if I started, I don't know, expressing uh, a lot of Andrew Tate type views and then you made the inference, oh, this must be this kind of person. And then, and then you then, you know, you start. Well, those are a set of views. Yeah. Whereas we're talking oh, looks about and okay. looks and appearances. Yeah. It would be like if you decided that you were going to shave your head and spray tan yourself and start dressing like Andrew Tate. Uh, you know, if you did that, could I assume that you agreed with Andrew Tate's views? Probably not, although it might be the case statistically that people who look like Andrew Tate are more likely to have Andrew Tate's views. If I go around assuming that everybody who looks like Andrew Tate is a rabid fan of Andrew Tate, I'm likely to be very wrong about that on many occasions to hurt a lot of people's feelings unnecessarily by being overly judgmental. Then it seems like we should leave this to the psychology literature. I don't know. You say, obviously, the normative questions aren't asked, answered so well by empirical studies. But, you know, we were saying how most people, if they're shown evidence against their view, they will still vote based on feeling all these psychological things. So similarly with... Uh, stereotypes. There's a lot of psychological work on how the difference between stereotypes and prejudices, how stereotypes are useful, you know, as a heuristic, as a sh shorthand, as you say. So maybe it's, you know, not our place or your place as a political theorist to talk about this stuff as much as psychologists. It's more of a feeling issue. Well, you know, when we ask people what they think, you know, we're asking them what they consciously think and what they're able to say. And a lot of people aren't able to give very good explanations for what it is that they actually are think and do and believe. A lot of people, even if they do give an explanation, I'm not saying that it will be um, you know, a, a poor explanation in terms of its con in terms of its sophistication, but it may just not be right. A lot of people make up kind of um, rationales for why they do what they do in part because they don't know and don't understand their own behavior. Uh, and if you sit down with somebody in you know, therapy sessions for a long period of time, I'm sure psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, you know, psychotherapists can try to you know, figure out why that person thinks the way that they think. But if we try to make big, broad judgments about how whole swathes of people vote or think, it gets difficult to do that uh, if, we're, if we're approaching it psychologically, because the psychology discipline is very much catered to the idea that every individual is is their own case and different individuals may come to different behaviors in different ways and you have to get to know people you really get to know them and you know see them repeatedly across time to understand why they are behaving in a particular way 
By contrast, social theories, social theories have to make bigger, broader claims about larger units of people. They can't sit there with particular individuals and, and try to get to the bottom of it. So it's, it's possible in social theory, I think, to make claims about in general why things are happening or in general, you know, what motivates people to do different things. But when you try to make those claims specific and go, ah, this person, this person is this kind of person because they fit these stereotypes or they fit these demographic signifiers. And I've read social science and people who fit those signifiers, they tend to be this kind of person with these beliefs. You know, once you do that, then it stops being interesting or useful social theory and just becomes another way of picking on the people that you meet. So whatever social theory you read and whatever it says about what people from different groups or backgrounds tend to believe or tend to say, when you meet a new person, you ought to be open to the possibility that they may think all kinds of things. Who knows? Who knows what's in any given person's mind? When we're talking about big units and social change, then we can say things. But when we talk about specific people, specific people are weird. And, and they do all kinds of weird things for all kinds of weird reasons that they don't even understand. I guess bridging the two, the social and the psychological, going back to Manuel from last week, Palologos and humility, yeah. I guess if you had, you know, obviously you can meet an individual, they will have all sorts of crazy views, but if they're willing to see that view as maybe beyond their control or, you know, liable to change or not theirs, and also, yeah, they're, they're yeah, they change their beliefs in it when the evidence changes. And you can think, okay, I, I, can, I can fit you in this type maybe, you know, as, and then that's, that's helpful. So just basically humility as a, as a trait that both social and psychological depend on in order to make should claims about things or normative yeah. claims. Yeah, I guess when it comes to, when it comes to people, it's, it's really hard to say much about specific people unless you really get to know them. And I think and that's really what I just keep coming back to. It's really hard to say a lot about specific people unless you really get to know them. And so when we start talking about what specific people should do, there's so much context that comes into what should an individual do. That when you try to theorize about the individual decision, I think there's something a little bit almost silly about trying to theorize about individual decisions. And so while I, when I read this book 10 years ago, it really stuck with me and uh, stayed with me, this idea that the vote is not efficacious. You vote and it doesn't get deliver results. As I have continued to develop, I think less in terms of the individual. and. As I think less in terms of the individual, these questions about what should the individual do, it seems to me that that is such a, a specific thing that involves really getting to know a person and really getting to know what their situation is and what's open to them and you know, why they might be drawn toward different things. And there are so many different reasons why someone might think something, feel something. And all of that's compatible with, at the same time, making big social theory arguments about what the overall causes are of large-scale social phenomena. You can say individuals vary, and it's very difficult to say why any particular person does any particular thing. And at the same time, you can say you know, uh, that certain large-scale social phenomena tend to give rise to certain kinds of, of behavior at scale. 
And you know, I think keeping those things both in mind at the same time, it, it is difficult to do, but worth doing, you know, worth trying to think it about your society and how it's developing, how it's changing. While at the same time, when you meet new people, not just treating them as examples of that theory. A hard thing to do in practice, but something worth trying to do. Anyway, we're at an hour 23, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Bye.